starting a, a new sermon series this morning. Uh, and uh, as we were wrapping up the book of Ecclesiastes, I got a lot of feedback that was like, this is, this is great. We love the book. Um, it's, it, some of you said it's your favorite book ever and you wish you could get back into it. I mean, we've only, and, and what's true is we really have only scratched the surface of what's in it. And so what I think we're going to do is just run it back. It's Ecclesiastes part two and start all over again. And so, <laughs> so uh, I don't want the church to grow at all. You know, that's the point. Um, <laughs> so please don't fire me. So uh, we're actually going to start. So one of the things that uh, can happen when we go detailed verse by verse through book of the Bible is we can start to lose the forest through the trees. We can, we can look at uh, the details of scripture. We can look at what each passage says, but, but one of our values here is to apply the scriptures. We, we love the word of God. We want to know what it says. We want to know how to apply it to our lives. And what we can do when we go verse by verse, detailed look at, at, at books of the Bible, what we can do is we can forget that the Bible as a whole is a story. The Bible is a story of God's redemptive plan for the world. And so in order to really understand a passage, we don't just need to know what it says and what the, you know, these, these, these few verses that we have that we can keep in our back pocket and throw into our life at different points. We don't just need to know what this passage says. It's helpful to know where it fits within the greater story of the rest of the word of God, this, this wonderful story of God's redemption. So last year, we did a five-week series through the Pentateuch, uh, first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, in Deuteronomy. So right now what we're going to start is an eight-week series going through the, the history books of the Old Testament, kind of picking up where we left off and doing this 30,000-foot view, starting with Joshua and going to Esther over the next eight weeks, just looking what is the, what is the story of Israel. We're calling it consistent failure, overwhelming grace, because this is something that we see over and over and over again in the history of Israel. And it's important for us to know, because as we understand the story of Israel, as we understand this history, we can understand the New Testament better. We can understand how we fit in to God's story uh, even, even better. And so that's what we're going to do this morning, beginning in the book of Joshua. We'll be doing this 30,000-foot view of the book of Joshua. So I invite you to turn with me to the book of Joshua. Normally, what I would do is I would read the text, and then we'd get into it. Uh, Joshua is 24 chapters long, and you don't want to be here for three hours. So uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray and then, uh, and then we'll get into the story of the book of Joshua together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the great love that you have for us. God, I thank you that you didn't abandon us and leave us alone, but God, you have provided us with your word. You have, you have given us your revelation of yourself to us in Scripture, God. We, we, we don't have to wonder what you're like. We don't have to wonder what, what you want from us, God. You have provided us all that we need in your word. And so, Father, we, we thank you for that, and we praise you for that. We pray, Father, that as we get into your word, as we, as we spend time discussing it and talking about it, God, I pray that you would shape and mold us in the image of Jesus, God, that we would have ears that are ready to hear what you're saying to us, open and ready to listen, God, and hearts that are ready to apply it so that we leave here different than when we came because of our time in the word. Father, we love you, we love you, and we praise you. It's in the wonderful, holy, precious name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Every nation has these defining moments that, that kind of define the, the rest of their history, like these big, important, major events in their history. So I think of the Roman Empire. Th their big, major moment in their history is Julius Caesar crossing the Rubicon. So Julius Caesar was stationed north of Italy. He had an army with him. He was told to disband the army. 
but instead he marched the army south into Italy. The, the Rubicon is the river that marks the northern border of Italy, and by crossing the Rubicon, this is what we, the, what we use the phrase crossing the Rubicon, this kind of no turning back, by crossing the Rubicon with an army, Julius Caesar declared war on Rome and effectively ended the Roman Republic and eventually started the Roman Empire. This is a major moment in the, in the history of the Roman Empire. For America, of course, uh, the United States, this Im- major uh, I- important moment that defined the future of the country is when Texas joined the Union, yeah. right? <laughs> That's what we learned in Texas history, at least. I don't know. It wasn't, it wasn't much of a country before that, I think, is what, is what we learned. Um, but no, every country has these major moments, these, like, these, these uh, incredible events that, that frame the future of the country. And, and what we see in the book of Joshua is this major moment for the people of Israel. Even if you don't know the Old Testament, even if you've never grown up in church, you've probably heard the phrase, the promised land, right? And and what that refers to in the Bible is is God told Abraham in the book of Genesis that his family would inherit the the land of Canaan. If we see a map up here on the the screen, you can see this is modern-day Middle East. You can see Israel up there in the top left, kind of this little bit of land. That is the land of Canaan, modern-day Israel, where Israel is. And, uh, and God told Abraham in the book of Genesis, he said, you can in- your, your descendants will inhabit the land of Canaan. They will, this, this is the land that I am going to give to them. And so for the first couple generations, Abraham and his descendants lived in the land of Canaan, just wandering around. And then because of a famine, they relocated to Egypt. Uh, and in Egypt, uh, famously, they became slaves uh, to the Egyptians, uh, lived there for several hundred years in slavery. And then at the end of the, or in the book of Exodus, we see that God rescued the Israelites from slavery. God parted the Red Sea through, uh, with, with Moses as his leader. They, he parted the Red Sea so the Israelites could walk through on dry land and escape slavery in Egypt. And then the Israelites, they wander around. Uh, they, they get to a mountain where God gives them the law. They wander around the desert for 40 years because they rebelled against God. And now in the book of Joshua, we see that the people of Israel are finally right on the edge of the promised land. They are ready to go in. And everybody's excited. There's, there's energy. This is the land that not, this isn't just something that they've been looking forward to for a few years. Like this isn't a, a trip to Disneyland they've been saving up for. Like, like this is hundreds of years in the making, centuries in the making, that where the people of Israel are excited and ready to take the promised land. They're ready to go in. They're really looking forward to it. And right as they get to the edge of the promised land, their leader, Moses, dies. And so now they're, here they are, right on the edge, ready to go in, with nobody to lead them. And if no one's going to lead them, they don't, they don't know what they're doing. They don't know how to go in, they don't, and, and not only that, not only is it just like a leader dying, this is God's chosen leader, the guy that, that, that spoke with God, that communicated with him so closely that his face would shine and he'd have to cover it with a, a cloth, like God's chosen leader was, was gone from the people of Israel. And that's where the book of Joshua picks up. The people right there on the edge, ready to go in, but wondering who's going to lead them. That's where we get at the beginning of Joshua chapter 1. Joshua chapter 1, verse 1 says this. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the servant of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. 
from the wilderness and this Lebanon as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life just as I was with Moses. So I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. So here, right at the beginning of, of Joshua, uh, it, it's God solves this big problem that's facing the people of Israel. This, this big conundrum that they're facing as they're about to go in. They're wondering who's going to lead them. And while the people of Israel are anxious and frightened and worried and wondering who's going to take their place of Moses, God says, hey, Joshua, come here. <laughs> You're the guy. You're the guy that I've chosen to lead the people of Israel into the promised land. And just as I was with Moses, I'm going to be with you. But God continues in verse 7. You can, you can sense like the excitement for Joshua, right? Like he is, he is excited now. He's, he's God's chosen person. He's going to take the people of Israel into the land. This is something he's been looking forward to his entire life. But God gives him a challenge starting in verse 7. He says, only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your, make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So Joshua's excited. He has been chosen by God. He is God's chosen man to lead the people of Israel into the promised land. But God says, hey, I'm on your side, but you need to make sure that you follow the rules. You need to follow my law. You need to obey all of the commands that I have given you. Because I'm on your side as long as you do that. If you start breaking the rules, you disobey my commandments, you disobey my, my covenant that I made with Moses, if you start going against the rules that I put in place, then, I'm, then I'm, not on, I'm not with you anymore. I'm not on your side anymore. I'm on your side as long as you follow the rules, as long as you obey the commandments that I've given you. And he says there in verse 9, this verse that so many of us have memorized and quoted, be strong and courageous. Like this, There's nothing to be afraid of because you are God's chosen person for this position. God is on your side when you go in. And the reason that Joshua is probably scared, one of the many reasons, they're about to embark on a, a really long military campaign as they try to take over the land. But on top of that, Joshua knows that he's God's chosen person because God just told him. But the people of Israel don't know that. And the people of Israel have been very bad at following leadership. <laughs> Uh, already up to this point in their history. They're, they're really bad at following direction. And so Joshua now is, is tasked with, with informing the rest of Israel that he's in charge, that he is the leader. He's going to take them into the promised land. And he doesn't know if they're going to listen. He doesn't know if they're going to obey him. He doesn't know if they're going to go in. Just 40 years earlier, Joshua was one of 12 spies that went into the promised land, and they checked it out, and they came back, and 10 of the 12 said, we shouldn't go in because the people are scary, and two of the twelve, one of them being Joshua, said, no, we should go in, because God is on our side, and the people of Israel listened to the ten, and they rebelled against God, and that's why they wandered for 40 years in the wilderness. So Joshua has been the here before. He's seen this play out, and he, he knows he's God's chosen leader, but he doesn't know that they know that 
and that they'll follow him. So the rest of chapter 1, Joshua gets up and he says, I'm, uh, I'm in charge. <laughs> we are going into the promised land. And that's what makes verse 16 of chapter 1 so incredible. Verse 16 of chapter 1, they answered Joshua, all that you have commanded us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. It's not exactly a mark of confidence based on how they obeyed uh, Moses, but, uh, but <laughs> they said it anyways. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your commandment and disobeys your words, whatever you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. So Joshua is clearly God's chosen leader. And the people of Israel know it, and they recognize it. And the rest of the first five chapters is God confirming that before everybody else, that, that Joshua is my leader, and the people of Israel are going in. In chapter 2, the Israelites send out spies into the land, and they meet a woman named Rahab, who's an important character in the Bible. We'll, we'll meet her later. But they, they go out into the land, and the spies hear that the people of the land are terrified of the people of Israel. In chapter 3, we, we see that they're getting ready to enter into the promised land. We can put that second map up here. The, they're getting ready to enter the promised land. That circle is where they are now. And between where that circle is and where that yellow line is, is a really big river called the Jordan. A and so what God does to confirm Joshua in front of everybody, just like he confirmed to Moses, is that when they get to the river, when they get to the Jordan, and the priests enter the river, the water stops upstream, and they walk through on dry land. And it would not have been lost on anybody. This is God saying, this is my guy. Joshua is my leader. You are my people. Go in and take the land. So you can feel the excitement building up. In chapter 4, they commemorate the event. In chapter 5, they celebrate a Passover feast in, in remembrance of their, their flight from Egypt as they get ready to take over the land. There's, there's excitement building. There's very clear to everybody that God has chosen his man. God has chosen the guy to lead the people of Israel, and they're going to go in and take it. And that sets up a beautiful story in, 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 in chapter 6, this wonderful story of the people of Israel. They face their first battle in Joshua, in Joshua chapter 6 in the city of Jericho. And like any good military leader, they decide that they're not going to get out any weapons. They're not going to get out any siege ramps. They're not going to get out any, any battering rams. They're, the city of Jericho is this major fortress fortified with fortified walls and and they decide we're just going to walk around it just for seven days that's what god told them to do walk around the city of jericho for seven days that's a really i mean it's a really strange battle strategy and and part of the reason for that this is not like it's not regular israelite practice like they didn't they didn't go through the rest of the promised land circling cities until they just they fell down like but god god told joshua specifically with jericho as you approach the city, walk around it seven times. Or walk around it for seven days. And on the seventh day, walk around it seven times. And at the end of the seventh day, scream, yell, blow trumpets. And, and God said he would take down the walls. So the people of Israel obey. They get into the land. They get, around, they get to Jericho, and they start walking around. They start wandering the city on the outskirts of the wall seven days. And on that seventh day, they circle the city seven times, and they yell, and they scream, and they blow trumpets, and at, at the seventh time, as they blow their trumpets, and they yell and they scream, the walls of Jericho come crashing down. God supernaturally takes out the, the walls of Jericho and gives the city into the hands of the people of Israel. And what that, that is definitive proof of to the people of Israel is that God is on their side. And, and when God is on their side, 
the people of Israel win. Like when God is on their side, they are not going to lose. We see this back in chapter 2 when the, when the spies meet Rahab, who's a prostitute in the city of Jericho, and they're, they're spying out the land, and Rahab says, uh, she hides the spies and says, listen, I trust in your God. I believe in your God. He's more powerful than anybody that we believe in, and so, so I, I, please just spare my life if I, if I uh, take care of you guys and the life of my family. And, and so she does, and they do. When the spies come in and they hear from Rahab, all of the land is, is trembling. Their hearts are melting away because they know that if God is on your side, like this is the God who parted the Red Sea. This is the God who parted the Jordan River. This is the God who, who fed his people in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the God who wiped out the Egyptian army. This is the God who has power and control and authority. And if God is on your side, then we can do nothing against you. And we see that with the city of Jericho as the walls come crashing down. We see this over and over and over again in the book of Joshua, that when God is on their side, Israel wins. They go uh, and attack a city named Ai. This is the second time they do that, and I'll get to the first in a second. But the second time they attack a city with Ai, when God is on their side, they win easily. There's another point in the book of Joshua where God hurls stones out of heaven at an army that they're opposing. Like, when God is on their side, they win, no question. They are undefeated in battle when they're going with God. The problem for Israel is that God wasn't always on their side. If you remember what God told Joshua, he said, I'm going to be on your side, but you have to follow my commandments. You have to do what I said. You have to be perfect in how you obey me. And Israel wasn't always perfect. One of the things that God commanded as the Israelites went into Jericho and, and, and destroyed it, uh, one of the things that God commanded is that the Israelites were to wipe everything out in the city of Jericho. Jericho was this wicked, evil city uh, full of uh, depravity, full of sin and brokenness. And so a God had declared a judgment on the city of Jericho, and the Israelites, when they went in, were to destroy everything. They were to topple houses. They were to, to, to kill and destroy everything if they found anything of any value they were to bury it in a pile of rubble and ash like like everything in the city was to be destroyed completely and we meet a guy named Achan in Joshua chapter 7 he he goes through the city of Jericho while people are are uh, killing and destroying and following God's commands he walks through the city and he decides that he sees some things that he really likes <laughs> some things that that he finds valuable so he takes uh, some gold. He takes some valuable items from the city of Jericho, and they, when they move on, he takes them with him in direct rebellion against God's command. He takes the gold with him, and so in chapter 7, we, we see that the Israelites come across the city named Ai. I already mentioned that they attacked it a second time. That means they attacked it a first time at some point. Uh, they come across the city named Ai, and they get there, and, and the Israelites send out a scout team, and they say, it's just a little town not very many people, just send a little squad out there. It'd be really easy to conquer. So Israel does. They send a little squad out there, and they are slaughtered by AI. I mean, destroyed by the city. A and it says the same phrase that we see in, uh, in, in uh, Joshua 2, where it says that the, the people in the land, their hearts melted before the Israelites. We see that in Joshua 7, uh, that uh, uh, verse 5. The men of AI killed 36 of their men, and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim, 
and struck them at the descent, and the hearts of the people melted and became as water. And so when God was against the people of Israel, Israel became like the people of the land. Israel's hearts melted. Israel's hearts uh, faltered. They, they, you think about it, like they just witnessed Jericho come crashing down. Like the walls of Jericho tumbled on their own in a supernatural way. They didn't have to fire a shot destroying the city of Jericho. And they get to this little town called Ai, thinking God is on their side. They're invincible. They're unbeatable. And they get to this little town called Ai, and this town destroys them. Like this town wipes the floor with them in battle. And they, you can feel the pause, like, like God, aren't you, aren't you on our side? <laughs> Shouldn't we be invincible? Shouldn't we win this easily? They figure out that it, God was not on their side because Achan had disobeyed God. He had taken the things that God had told them not to take from Jericho. So what they do is they drag Achan out, they kill him, they, de- they destroy all the things that he took, and then they go fight Ai again and win easily. This is a pattern that repeats itself over and over again in the book of, of Joshua. Israel is victorious when God is on their side. They, they win battles in a supernatural way, and then they get easily defeated because they rebel against God, they break his commands, and God's not on their side. Over and over again, we see that Israel wins with God, and Israel loses without God. When God is on their side, they thrive, they win, they're victorious, and when God is against them, when God is not on their side, they are easily wiped out and destroyed. Over and over and over again, we see uh, examples of rebellion and, and brokenness. In Joshua chapter 9, the Israelites are deceived by people of the land, and the reason that they're deceived and they give into it, even Joshua is deceived, and they, they get tricked into signing a peace treaty with people of the land. The reason that they're deceived is because they don't ask God about it. They never take it to the Lord. So we see this again and again in the book of Joshua. When, the, when they don't go to the Lord, when God is not on their side, they lose over and over and over again. We see this in Joshua chapter 13. Joshua 13, this is about 10 years after they've entered the land and started conquering. The Israelites have God on their side. They weren't to be afraid. They were to be strong. Go in and take the land. God promised it to them. They were to go in and take it. 10 years later, they should inhabit the land, and it should all be theirs. But we see that they failed. They've rejected God's commands. They have not gone and conquered the land completely. In, uh, in, in chapter 13, it says this, Joshua was old. And advanced in years, and the Lord said to him, You are old and advanced in years. That's a little harsh, you know? It's like, hey, you're old. Uh, there remains yet very much land to possess. This is the land that yet remains, all the regions of the Philistines, all those of the Gerishites, and he goes on and on and on and on. So he tells Joshua, You've been at this for ten years, you've you've been lazy off and on, the people of Israel have, and And these are all the places you have yet to conquer. And they're going to play a role in the future of Israel uh, in in a a very negative way. But this plays out again and again in the book of Joshua. When they don't do what God says, when they don't follow his commands, when God is not on their side, they lose. Again and again and again. And this is starkly contrasted with the, the radical victories that they get when God is on their side. Like these supernatural occurrences, these stories of Jericho that we like to celebrate and hype up and and talk about the power of our God and the people of Israel witnessed that and lived that and saw that and at the same time they rebelled against him 
And when God wasn't on their side, they would lose. In, ju- in just as spectacular ways. So at the end of Joshua, he sees all this playing out. Joshua chapter 23. Excuse me, Joshua 24. In 23 and 24, Joshua goes and he's about to die and he's talking to the people of Israel. And this is, he distances himself from them. <laughs> he's like, I, I've been faithful. You guys are not that faithful. <laughs> he says this in verse 14 of chapter 24. Probably one of the most famous lines in the book of Joshua, aside from uh, Joshua 1.9. Joshua tells the people of Israel, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. That implies that they are still worshiping these other gods. Verse 15. If it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods of your fathers served, uh, the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in the land you dwell, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So Joshua says, "You guys serve whoever you want. You've already seen what happened the last ten years when you didn't serve God, and when you did, you can serve whoever you want. I'm going to serve God. I'm going to follow the Lord." And in Joshua 24, the people of Israel say, "Yeah, we'll follow God." And Joshua says, "I don't think you will." And they said, "No, we will." And so he, he puts up a rock at the end of chapter 24 in verse uh, 27. Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it was heard in all the words of the Lord, uh, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore, it shall be witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. Uh, and so Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. And we see in verse 31, Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua, all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. So Joshua sets himself up and says, I have followed the Lord. I have been faithful. I have done what the Lord asked me to do. You guys can do whatever you want. You can follow the Lord. You can not follow the Lord. You can win with God. You can lose without him. That's up to you. And they said, we're going to win with God. He says, all right, this rock is between us. You have to do what the Lord says. You have to follow his commands. You have to follow his laws. You have to follow his rules. And if you do that, you're going to win with God. You're going to thrive with him as a people. So this is something that we see over and over and over again in the book of Joshua. And this is the main idea that we get here in the book. If we want to thrive, we need God on our side. If we want to thrive as people, as individuals, if you as seniors want to thrive as you go out, and, and, and live your life, if you want to thrive as a church and we want to thrive as a people of God, we need God on our side. But that begs the question, how do we get God on our side? How do we make sure that God is with us? Because Joshua answers that by saying we follow the rules. We follow the law. We follow the command. Joshua 1, follow all the commands that I've given you in the book of the law, in the book of Moses. Follow the Ten Commandments. Follow all the rules that I've laid out for you. Follow all of those things perfectly, and God is going to be on your side. We see that again in Joshua 24. Follow all the rules. Be God's people perfectly, and God is going to be on your side. And so Joshua says that if you just follow the rules, if you just do what God says, God is going to be on your side, and you're going to thrive. But the problem that we see in the book of Joshua and we see throughout the history of Israel is that nobody has done that perfectly. Nobody has followed all the commands of God perfectly. 
And so if it's up to us to earn the favor of God, we're never going to earn it. The writer of Hebrews says that in the New Testament. He says Joshua did a really good job. He did, he did what he was supposed to do, but Joshua ultimately failed at giving the people of Israel rest. He failed at giving them peace. He failed at giving them this utopia where they have a perfect relationship with God and they, they live it out forever. He ultimately failed at that because all he had to give them were the rules. All he had to give them was the law, and they were never going to be able to earn God's favor through the rules. So what the writer of Hebrews tells us and hints at is that we need a better Joshua. We need a better leader. We need someone who's going to not just give us the rules to follow to earn the favor of God. We need one who's going to guarantee that God is on our side. And a better Joshua shows up in the New Testament. In, in uh, Hebrew, the name Joshua is Yehoshua. And as Greek took over, and, and in the New Testament, Greek was a common language. When Greek took over, Yehoshua was uh, translated into Iesus, Jesus. Jesus is literally a better Joshua. When the angel told Mary to name her child Jesus, she told him to name your child Joshua, the leader of God's people, the one who's going to set them free, the one who's going to give them rest, the one who's going to make sure that God is on their side. Name your child Joshua. Jesus. Jesus shows up, and by his death and resurrection, he turns the wrath of God into the favor of God. And by placing our faith in Jesus, we can know for, for sure that God is on our side. Romans 8, verse 1, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God is on your side if you place your faith and hope in him. If we want to thrive as a people, the gospel has to be the core of what we do. We're not going to thrive because we follow the rules and earn the favor of God. We're going to thrive because Jesus has made a way for us to have the favor of God. And we need to live that out. As individuals, the gospel has to be the core of everything that we do, every decision that we make, everything that we, we decide in our lives. It should be for the aim of making Christ known, for, for lifting, uh, lifting up the name of Jesus and living out the gospel. Because when we live out the gospel, we are living out the relationship that we have with God that Jesus guaranteed and made a way for us to have. And when God is on our side, when we are walking according to his word, when we are following him and living with him and, and enduring this, this wonderful relationship with him, when we are doing those things, we will thrive in our lives. We will be people with peace and hope and life and love. With our eyes transfixed on this, this future reality that we're going to be this eternal kingdom of God. If you want to thrive, seniors, if you want to thrive in your life as you go out, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus and let the gospel be the core of what you do. If you guys want to go out into the world, take the gospel out into the world. You will thrive that way. Allow the gospel to guide your decision making. If we as a church want to thrive, we can't make it about the rules. Our goal can't be to try to get people to follow all the rules and be good people and live good lives because we're, we know that we can't earn the favor of God that way. It can't be about the rules. It has to be about the gospel. Our conversations have to be about the love that Christ has for us 
by his death and resurrection, how God has favor upon us in Jesus, and we can live that out. Our advice to each other, our marriage advice, and parenting advice, and friendship and relationship advice has to be rooted and grounded in the gospel. The gospel has to be central. Because it's only by Jesus that we have God on our side. And it's only when God is on our side that we thrive as people. In Romans chapter 6, Paul deals with the, the issue of sin for Christians. And he says, uh, the, in this teaching, then there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The uh, People can wonder, do I just, can I just do whatever I want? Can I live however I, I want to live? And Paul says, no. And he says in Romans 6, that uh, what benefit were you then deriving of the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. What Paul is saying is when you were living in sin, you weren't thriving. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were broken and without hope and without life. So we avoid sin as believers, not because we're trying to earn the favor of God, but because we've been set free from it in Jesus. We have God on our side and we can thrive with him. As individuals and as a church, if we want to thrive, if we want to grow, we want to have a wonderful life and, and all hope and joy and peace, if we want to grow as a body of believers and see more and more people joining us, then the gospel has to be the core of everything that we do. Because if God is on our side, that's when we're going to thrive. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the life that we have in Jesus. And God, I thank you that that you're the same God who, who broke down the walls of Jericho. You are the same God that hurled stones out of heaven to support your army. You are the same God that gave the people of Israel a leader when they needed one most. You are the same God, this powerful, almighty, holy God. And God, we, we know that by the death and resurrection of Jesus, you're on our side. If we will put our faith and hope and trust in you, God, you're on our side. You are for us. Father, I pray that every single one of us as individuals would, would live with our lives fixed on the gospel, our eyes fixed on the gospel, God, that, that the good news of salvation in Jesus would guide everything that we say and do. God, I pray that, that we as a church would keep the gospel central, that we would keep the gospel as core, that, that the salvation in Jesus would be the thing that guides our conversations, would be the thing that, that guides our outreach, that guides our conversations in the world. God, I pray that our relationships be rooted and centered on the gospel. And God, through that, I pray that we would thrive. Pray for anyone here today who does not know you, who's never placed their faith and hope in Jesus, God, I pray that this morning would be the morning that they go from death to life. That they know for the very first time that, that you are on their side. That the wrath that you have on their sin and rebellion would turn into favor by the death and resurrection of Jesus. Father, we love you and praise you. It's in the wonderful holy name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.